If you will turn with me, please, to the book of Matthew. The scripture reading this morning and the sermon will be based on Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. Following the scripture reading, we will sing the Gloria Patri. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three different sections. The first section is about man's guilt before God. The second section is about God's grace to sinful people. And the third section is about how we are to respond with gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. It's right that the prayer, section on prayer and the Lord's Prayer would come after the Ten Commandments because we need God's help. None of us keep the Ten Commandments, being honest. We break them daily. So we need God's forgiveness. We need God's help. That's why the Lord's Prayer is sectioned after the section on the Ten Commandments. It's our response to how we have fallen short of God's law. Now, a couple of historical side notes before we begin. The Lord's Prayer was actually a part of one of the central pieces of um, the diet of early Christians. So they would often recite the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer throughout history. Catechesis was part of it, part of the community. In 1873, archaeologists discovered what's called the Didache. And the Didache is not a part of Scripture, it's not inspired, but it's an early Christian writing written in about A.D. 150 that tells us a little bit about what the life of the church was like in the early days. Again, it was written around A.D. 150. One of the things that the Didache uh, mentions is that the Lord's Prayer was recited three times a day by early Christians. Uh, So the Lord's Prayer was very central to how Christians functioned from the very beginning. 
So it's very important. The section here in the Heidelberg Catechism is a preview to the Lord's Prayer, and it comes to us really maybe with three different divisions. Why you should pray, how you should pray, and what you should pray. Why should you pray, how should you pray, and what you should pray. So first, why should you pray? Well, the Catechism gives the answer that Prayer is the most important part of thankfulness. We are to respond to God with gratitude, with thanksgiving for what he's done. But in addition to that, God has commanded us to pray. Scripture is filled with all kinds of commands uh, giving us uh, that we should pray. Now, we often go to God because we want something, and often those things that we want are very small, although they might seem very big, but we forget in the midst of it, to thank God for the greater things that he's done in our life. I heard a story recently about a young uh, school student who, after his examination was over, he went to turn in his test, and there was a pledge at the bottom that said, I have received no outside intervention. And the teacher got the examination, and she said, well, why didn't you sign the pledge? And he said, well, I prayed to the Lord for help throughout the examination. And she looked at the exam and said, I can assure you, you received no outside in- intervention <laughs> on the exam. Isn't it true, though, that we go to the Lord for things that we think are really big, but they're kind of small? And the big things in life, the things that he's done, like forgiving our sin, uh, we forget to thank him for. It's just human nature. G.I. Williamson He defined prayer this way. Prayer is fundamentally the longing aspiration of the regenerate heart for the true God as his portion. The fundamental, uh, fundamentally the longing aspiration of the regenerate heart for the true God as his portion. I think that's what prayer should be. It shouldn't just be prayer that God would give us something, but that we would get God himself, that we would commune with him. The Catechism points out that God will only give his grace and the Holy Spirit to those who are constantly and with heartfelt longing asking him for these gifts. If we're not praying to the Lord for his blessing, for the Holy Spirit, for his gifts, do you think that we can expect that we would receive from him? Maybe he would, but he likes to be asked. He likes to be uh, for us to come to him as children, coming to a father, a loving father. So that's why we should pray, because he's commanded us to, because we need to be thankful and mindful for what he has done to adore him as our heavenly father. But how do we pray? Well, question 117, the answer is that we would pray from the heart. We would pray with sincerity. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a true heart. We're also to pray with faith. So James chapter 1, verse 6 says, If any of, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, but let him ask in faith, not with doubting. We're to pray to God with humility. Lord, 
as it says in Psalm 10, 17, Lord has heard the, the desires of the humble. We are to pray fervently. As James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We are to pray fervently. We're to pray with perseverance. If you remember the story of the parable, or the parable of the um, persistent widow, the widow is concerned that she's not getting justice, and so she asks the judge again and again and again and again and again, until finally the judge says, you know what, I'm just going to grant her, her request so she'll go away. And that's pretty much the sum of that parable. But the quality that we are to pray to God with here is sincerity. So we are to pray with faith, with humility, with persistence, with fervency, with zeal, all of those things. But here we are to pray with sincerity. Now in our text, the Lord Jesus tells us not to be like the hypocrites because they pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. We're not to be praying so that people can see us and in a very showy way, so that people will think we're very spiritual or we're very knowledgeable about the Bible. We may want people to think that about us, but that's not how we are to pray. Instead, we're to go into our closets and pray to the Lord in secret. I think it's sad that most people only pray, or some people only pray on special occasions or with family. We're told to pray in secret, from you to God, not in the presence of everyone else. One of my favorite parables is later in Luke 18, where Jesus tells the parable of the tax collector and uh, the Pharisee. You would think, if you were listening to Jesus tell this parable when he originally told it, most people thought it would be the Pharisee who God heard his prayer, right? They would think, here's a man who knows the law, knows scripture, prays great prayers, and he would be the one to go home to his house justified. Unfortunately, and the tax collector, the one who's outcast and who everyone despises, who's obviously sinful, who's doing bad things, God wouldn't hear that person's prayer, Right? But it's the Pharisee uh, who says, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's not even really a prayer. It's basically saying, look how wonderful I am and the things that I have done. Instead, the one who goes down to the house justif- his house justified is the tax collector who says his prayer is the tax collector standing far off doesn't lift his eyes up into heaven and says, beating his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the model that we have in Scripture. We are to pray with contrition, with repentance, with heartfelt sincerity, knowing that we don't measure up to God's laws. We don't keep God's commands, and we have to acknowledge that, even, how, even if it's not very fun to acknowledge it. We also are to pray with the appropriate title. I'm always a little, 
on a little uncomfortable when people pray to some absolute spirit, some you know, divine being, some high up in the sky, but they never, you know, and they pray in public this way, but they never give God the titles that he has given himself in Scripture. We are to call him Father. We are to pray through the mediation of Christ. Uh, we are not to pray to a she. <laughs> We're not to pray to some title that he has not given in Scripture. One of the things that Erasmus got right, Erasmus was a great humanist scholar in the days of the Reformation. Uh, he knew Scripture. He translated the Greek New Testament. He said that people were praying to the Virgin Mary and to Peter and Paul more than they were praying to the Father himself. And that's true. But the Virgin Mary and Peter and Paul are not able to rescue you from your sin. They have done nothing to rescue and redeem you from your sin. We're not to pray to anyone other than God. Additionally, we have to humble ourselves. When James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand when you come into glory. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. They, he asks, are you able to drink the cup that, that I am to drink? And they say, we are able. There's a kind of arrogance, I think, in that kind of approach to, the, to Jesus and to our Heavenly Father. We are to come knowing that we are sinful. Isaiah chapter 59 says, Your iniquities have separated you and your God. Your sins have hid your face, his face from you that he will not hear. One of the great themes of the Old Testament is that there's a a separation between God and his people. The tabernacle and the temple had very strict regulations about who could enter into the inner courts and who could, uh, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. It's a picture that we are separated. We're separated from God. He is holy and we are sinful. And when Christ came as our great high priest, he went into the Holy of Holies and represented us there as the perfect priest, offering the perfect sacrifice so that we, through Christ, could come directly to God himself. It's a great, it's a, it's a great comfort to know that we can, indeed, come to God himself through the mediation of Christ. But we need to remember that our sins do sometimes hinder us coming to the Lord. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How we treat our wives, how we treat our spouses, has a bearing on our prayers. Many things have a bearing, but everything that we receive from God and any, any listening that God does 
on our behalf only comes through the mediation of Christ through his grace. Everything that we have received is by grace alone. The Catechism says that God will certainly hear our prayer for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not because we've been so good and we've done so many wonderful things that we can come to God and expect that he will hear our prayers. It is only through Christ Jesus that we are able to approach him. Additionally to that, I think it's important that we recognize that we are coming not only to our Heavenly Father, but as it says in our text, uh, we're coming to someone with a kingdom. Part of the Lord's prayer is your kingdom come. This is the great creator of the ends of the earth. John Newton would write a hymn, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. He would say, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his love and power are such that none can ever ask too much. We are to pray for the things that we need. But in addition to that, I don't think it is sinful or wrong to pray for things we desire. As long as it's not a self-glorifying desire. Certainly, God is able, as Paul says, to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He is able to do infinitely more than all we ask or think. And I think that we pay him a compliment when we ask for things that are big. As long as we don't turn away from him if we don't receive what we've asked for. Here are some examples throughout Scripture. Now, granted, these are unique moments in the history of redemption, But Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still upon Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And they did. In answer to the prayer of Elijah, fire fell from heaven and consumed the burnt offering that he had prepared. And after his conflict on Carmel, he prayed for rain. And the heavens gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. The early church prayed for the deliverance of Peter from the hands of Herod, and the result was that an angel opened the iron gates of of the prison and let the disciples out. One commentator says that the promises of God and the experiences of others may well lead us on to a more fervent prayer life until we can testify from our own experience that God responds to the cries of men. Then his grace will be sufficient for us, and the Holy Spirit will give us the strength for the tasks, the trials, the thorns, and the temptations of life. Perhaps you're going through a trial, a temptation, a thorn. Maybe there's a thorn in the flesh. His grace is sufficient for you, but you have to come to him in prayer. I'd like to share with you for a moment, a, a great story of God's answer to prayer. I think one of the, one of the things that uh, I wish the congregation got to listen to more was people's personal testimonies or personal experiences of how the Lord has delivered them from certain trials. One person who I emailed this week, and he allowed me graciously to share his experience was Mark Wheat. Mark 
was an associate pastor and associate pastor here at TPC many years ago. And here is something that he prayed for, which was big. After our first child was born in 1994, we did not have a baby for 10 years. At first, it was no biggie because we moved from South Carolina to Michigan, then to Tyler. We were all over the place with our feelings. Then in 1998, we joined Tyler OPC. Sometime into these years, we be- it became a burden that we were not getting pregnant. We began to tell John. The church began to pray about it. We went to the doctor. We tried some drugs, but nothing happened. We were told that we would not be able to get pregnant. And during this time, the church began to pray from 2002 onward. At first, some prayed. Then after a period of time, more began to pray until I think everyone was praying, even the little ones. One thing that stands out is this. Frank Dolan stood up on a Wednesday night and cried out to God to give us a child. And it is true that we were pregnant at the time when he cried out. Not too long ago, my mother and Tyler came into contact with two women from TPC. When they realized they were talking to my mother, my mom told me that one of them immediately said that she had prayed for Evan to be born and that she was responsible for his birth. It was a great laugh. The other woman said, I was the one who prayed for Lori to stop having babies. As you know, we had three more. This is a great memory of of God getting everyone to pray and then showing us his mighty hand at work. When my doctor called me to tell me that we were pregnant, we could not believe it. He had said there was no way, but way. When I am down, discouraged, this is one of the things I remember and meditate on. Blessings on you and yours, Mark Wheat. God loves to answer prayer, and he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. One of the questions that I have about God that this catechism does not answer, it answers why we should pray, how we should pray, and what we should pray for. We should pray for things that are needful. And we do need our daily bread. We need his word, body and soul. But one of the questions I have is that why does God allow us to go through life not having the answer to all of our prayers, or not knowing the reasons why he's taken us through something that we've prayed for him to take away. And I can't answer that question for you sufficiently, but I do think I can answer it in this way, that Jesus, if I were writing scripture, I would have expected that the Lord Jesus, when he went to the cross, that there would have been no prayers and no cries, that he would have known that this was the Father's will, that he would be going there with a triumphant attitude and spirit. But that's not what we see. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. When he's on the cross, he prays, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's asking the why question. It's tempting to think in our day and age where we think that we have the answers to everything, that because we can't see the reasons why God takes us through something, that there must be no reason at all. 
There must be no one listening. But that is not the testimony of Scripture. Here's the Lord Jesus going through, undergoing the wrath of God. And he's wondering why. He doesn't get the answer. But what we see is that this great tragedy, this great evil of wicked men crucifying the Lord Jesus was turned into a great victory because he drank the cup of God's wrath. You are able to drink the cup of his grace, the cup of his blessing. I do not know what kind of trials and temptations that you are going through. Only God knows. But I can say that there is a purpose and a reason, even if you cannot see it. May we be a people who do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. May we be a people who study scripture, that pray to him with adoration, with confession, with thanksgiving, and yes, with supplication, trusting that even if the Lord does not answer our prayers in the way that we want him to, that nonetheless, his grace will be sufficient for us and that we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do thank you and praise you for what you have done through the Lord Jesus, that you've reconciled us to yourself, this great separation between us and you, This gap has been closed through Christ. We thank you that we can pray directly to you through the mediation of Christ. We thank you that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who knows what it is like to undergo far more than we will, who knows what it's like to go through the wrath of God. We pray that you would give us comfort and hope through the assurance that we have in Scripture of your love for us, that you do hear our prayers for the many saints that have gone before who've prayed for great things, and Lord, you have heard their prayer. We pray that we would also approach you humbly recognizing that we are sinful, mindful that we need you, just as we need our daily bread. Please conform us to the image of Christ and comfort us through the prayers that Christ himself prayed. In Jesus' name, amen.